what a conclusion. What we just read was the conclusion to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus has set the standard, I think, for, uh, conclusion, for conclusions of a message. Um, I don't think the conclusion you're going to get today uh, in this sermon is going to match Jesus' conclusion, uh, so we'll set that expectation here this morning. Um, but it is um, quite a way to end a, a set of teaching, uh, quite a way to conclude a sermon. What does it mean to be a part of the kingdom of God? We're here at the end of this sermon. We've, we've been tracking through here since chapter 5 for some time. And Jesus has taken a lot of time to lay out for us the character of the kingdom. And he concludes here now by talking about what it means to enter the kingdom. Now, I think if we look out into Christianity today, sadly, what passes for Christianity does not connect with what Jesus has to say here about entering the kingdom. And I think as we start out here, it might be helpful to have a discussion about this, the idea of the invisible church and the visible church. The invisible church is the church as God perfectly sees it. The invisible church is the community of all true believers for all time. The visible church is the church as we imperfectly see it. Those various congregations of which we are one that regularly meet together in a particular place at a set time for things like teaching and fellowship and worship. It's commonly, you call it the local church, and you could call them collectively the, the visible church. Now, here's what can happen. It can be easy to have the look or the appearance of being a part of the visible church and not actually be a part of the invisible church. And the reason is that Christianity for many has become disconnected from faith and more associated with form. Sadly, it's, it's really kind of easy to have the form of Christianity without the faith. And, and really, all you have to do is, is a few things. All you have to do is study the cultural traits of Christianity. If you view Christianity as a culture, just, just study the cultural traits of Christianity and work towards having those traits. And in today's Christianity, in modern Christianity, you'll be accepted. What do I mean? Well, first, you know, you got to work on your vocabulary. Very important. There are words for Christians that become cultural. You know, 
words we use, like fellowship, we say brother and sister to each other, words like born again that we use. If you can figure out how to use these words, use them in the right context, you say them with the right inflection, if you can figure it out, you can be in. Second thing, you have to, if you can emulate some of the social conventions, right? The, the sort of thinking around certain ideas about what, what we eat or what we drink or what we wear and all these other things that we have. And if you can show the same likes and the same dislikes, especially the dislikes, right? If you can, if you can figure that out, you could probably pass as a Christian. And the easiness of being able to do this in the day and age we live today, it's becoming easier and easier. Why is that? If you look at Christianity, the more and more Christianity aligns itself with secular thinking, with the secular culture's view of materialism, the more the church aligns with that view of materialism, the more the church aligns with pleasure-seeking the way the world sees it, the more the, the church aligns with entertainment the way the, church, the way the world sees it, the more the church aligns with, you know, economics and business thinking the way the world sees it, the, the more the, the church aligns with the fads and the trends of the secular and popular culture, it becomes more and more easier to facilitate this sort of um, acceptance into the Christian culture apart from having faith. The third thing is that, that can be part of it is to have the right heritage. You know, if your parents were Christians, even better if your parents were a pastor, even better, right? You'll probably be assumed to be a believer. People will assume it, of course. And if you do some of those things that reflect that godly heritage, you know, you, you go to the meetings, you, you, you do your tithing and your giving, you'll, you'll just kind of be ushered in, accepted in. And for these reasons, and there's a whole bunch of other reasons, there are so many who might sit comfortably in their churches and be totally disconnected from faith. And no one, and there's no questioning of that, no challenge of that ever. Now, the question is, why would someone willfully take up this task of having the form of Christianity? Why would someone take up this task of, of following this narrow way that we talked about? apart from actually being born again. Why would someone do that? There's a few th things you can think about. For one, for someone, it might be the path of least resistance for them, right? If they didn't do that, it would make relationships with family and other social relationships, it would immediately make those uncomfortable if they didn't do that. And I think also you have to remember, living biblically and the, using the principles of the Bible to live, it's a good way to live. There's a lot of benefits there. 
Think about families that subscribe to biblical thinking, biblical models. They'll, they'll tend to, you know, be happier and healthier, maybe stay together longer. So it's not surprising that someone might, that Christianity, in, because of all these reasons, would attract someone who might practice the style without having the substance. Practice the style without knowing the inner reality. I think we have to acknowledge that the human race has an incredible capacity for self-delusion. And I think there's, there's might be nowhere that it's more perfectly demonstrated in the lives of so many people that just have this form, this appearance of Christianity who are not actually in the faith. When, when you start thinking, when I start thinking about this, right, and you think about what it will be like ultimately when we, when we get to the destination that we're trying to get to, uh, I'm reminded of John Newton's words. John Newton, he was an 18th century um, minister in, in England. Um, he's most famously known as the author of the song that we all know, Amazing Grace, right? He's the author of that song. Here's what he said, and this resonates with me very much. He said, if I ever reach heaven, I expect to find three wonders there. First, to meet some I had not thought to see there. Second, to miss some that I had thought to meet there. And third, the greatest wonder of all, to find myself there. Right? Think of those words. He says, you go there and you say, whoa, was not expecting to see you make it, but you're here. <laughs> you go and you say, hey, where is, oh boy. And lastly, you say, look at me. By the grace of God, I am here. Right? As we, as, and I think as we've come to expect, as we've heard Jesus' words throughout this, ser- throughout this sermon, Jesus here, at his conclusion, he has anticipated this, this sort of issue of, of a false profession by those in, that might be inside and within the church. And he deals with this at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And really, this conclusion of the sermon is is a driving warning. And I think we've picked this up since starting in last week, that the conclusion is a driving and consistent warning. Open your eyes. Pay attention against getting sidetracked from true faith, true faith. Last week, when we looked at verses 13 through 20, he warned us about the dangers that come from outside. We spent a, a good amount of time talking about false teachers and false teachings. Those, those wolves dressed as sheep, right? Uh, those are these external dangers that might come. And now in verses 21 to 27, what is he warning us of? The dangers that come from within, the dangers that come from ourselves. Specifically, there's two dangers I want to present before you this morning. The first is the danger of basing your salvation on lip service alone. And the second is the danger 
of basing your salvation on your lifestyle alone. So we'll start with that first idea. Let's read again the first portion, uh, Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These words are meant to startle us. So if you feel a bit startled, then that's okay. What does Jesus do? He, here he brings up this example of people who give a remarkable confession. Really, it's a spectacular confession of belief as they stand before Jesus. But ultimately what? On the day of judgment, they are rejected. So if we look at this confession that they make, there, there are, we can describe it in a few different ways. We see that how do they address Jesus? They address Jesus as what? Lord. They say Lord. So first, right, they, they've got the lingo down. Right? They're not coming to Jesus saying, hey, guy. They come and they say Lord, right? It's, at, at, at minimum, it's, it's polite, right? They're saying Lord. That's what we see about this profession. The second thing we see about this confession, this confession that they make, when they say Lord, that as they say Lord, that is true. When they acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, when they say, when they say it, that's true. When Lord, is a, it's a divine title ascribed to Jesus. That title of Lord, right? It, it, there's an idea of Jesus as the judge. It forces us to see it that way. So there's, there's a ring of truth to the word Lord as they say it. The third aspect of their conf the confession that they make is that there's a, it's connected to emotion, right? It, there's, a, there's a fervency to it. There's a zeal that's attached to that. How do we know? They don't just say Lord. They say Lord, Lord, right? There is a certain zeal and emotional connection to it in um, the language at the time and in the culture at the time. If you were to say uh, that that act of repetition acknowledged a certain zeal, right? If you were to call after somebody and you just said their name and you said, I said, Rennie, right? But if I double it up in the language and in the culture, Rennie, Rennie, it, there's a zeal, there's a passion, there's an emotional connection to that. You can see. That, they, that this is part of their confession when they say, Lord, Lord. The fourth thing we see is that this is public. This is not hidden. They weren't making some sort of private confession. They, they, did, it, they did it in front of everyone. And they even did these works. And these works were not hidden. They were in public and in the name of Christ. So we look at this confession, what do we say? It, this looks like a model confession, right? It looks, it looks like it's got everything there. It looks beautiful. So what's wrong with it? I mean, 
nothing seemingly. I think it would be wonderful if all of us could make a similar confession just like this. But there is a problem. There is, there is a problem. Just intellectually correct orthodox belief. Orthodox just meaning correct, right? In, intellectually correct belief alone will not give us eternal life. Now, let me qualify this by saying, this is not to say that correct belief isn't necessary for salvation. It is. Scripture tells us that. Paul makes that clear in Romans chapter 10, 9 and 10. What does he say? If you confess with your mouth that what? Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. So, a man that refuses, that will not say, Lord, Lord, right? That cannot make that confession. A man that refuses to say that will never enter the kingdom of heaven. All true Christians will, will make a profession like that. Lord, Lord, we'll call Jesus Lord. All true Christians say, Lord, Lord. But what do we have to know? Not all who say, Lord, Lord, are true Christians. Intellectual belief does, alone does not indicate saving faith. You can be absolutely correct in your belief about Christ's nature, His person, His substitutionary atonement upon the cross, His resurrection, His return. You can have even fought against those that had heretical ideas, fight against those who were speaking heresies, and you can still not yet be truly saved. More than that, Zeal and fervency, volume, emotion alone, these things, they will not bring you eternal life. Saying the correct things and saying them with some emotion, it's not enough. It's not enough. And finally, even remarkable works do not bring eternal life. What do they say? Lord, Lord, what do we do? We prophesied in your name. Prophesying, preaching doesn't prove anything. I say standing as someone here is preaching to you. Fervently proclaiming the truth does not prove a spiritual reality. Right? A preacher can be very passionate and very fervent, but it could be that he likes his outline. Or he likes the fact that he can move people with his words, but it doesn't prove anything about the man himself. Now, that, especially as someone who seeks to preach to people, that's a sobering thought for me as I stand here and, and say that, those words. But I hope that these words are so, that create sobering thoughts in your minds too. Jesus doesn't want anyone miss the, to miss the point of all 
this great teaching that he has given us. We've been here for weeks upon weeks hearing Jesus' sermon, and he doesn't want anyone to miss the point. These professing believers here say, Lord, Lord, did we not, you know, cast out demons in your name? Did we do this? All these spectacular outward things, external things. Jesus says, correct thinking, zeal, spectacular displays of spiritual power. They do not prove a thing. And notice that the word there in verse 22, that's one word that stands out to me, is that word many. Do you see that there? Verse 22. On that day, what? Many. Many. That, that, the, the words are already in red in my translation because it's Jesus' words. But that word stands out to me in bold and in red to me. There will not be a few. But Many. Who will say this? And what will Jesus say to them? I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, you evildoers, in other translations it says. And it's, it's sadly, there are so many who might profess themselves as Christian that are not born again, that are lost. How can it be? Part of the answer is what Jesus says here, that they practice lawlessness. What, what does that mean? Now, we have to look at what Jesus says in verse 21. He gives the parallel to that, the opposite to that, the positive to that, when he says what? That he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter the kingdom of heaven. So we have those who practice lawlessness, then we have those who do the will of the Father in heaven. There are so many religious people, even, even those that you would think within, within churches that you might look and say, oh, you know, they've got their teaching, it's all, it's all right, it looks okay. There are so many religious people that are lost because they do not do God's will. What is Jesus talking about? Is he talking about salvation by works? No, he is not. It's not that our our works are at the root of our salvation. We know that Jesus Christ alone is at the root of our salvation, but our works are the fruit of our salvation for sure. In the context of the sermon, right, think back to what Jesus has said to us so far. What is Jesus talking about when he, when he talks about doing the will of the Father? He, think back to the Beatitudes, all the way back in, in chapter 5. Jesus is talking about the deep, ethical, spiritual obedience that is found in God's kingdom. There is a deep obedience that is found in the kingdom of God. The will of my Father that Jesus talks about here is the will that Jesus has revealed to us in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is talking about a a profound heart obedience that's not just on the surface, but that goes down 
that penetrates, that permeates into our inner being. The will of my Father, as he says, it indicates the character and the conduct of the kingdom of God. And the way to test yourself, if you were looking to test yourself, is to look below the surface. Look below the surface. Don't just look at the apparent results or, or, the, or the miracles or, or the orthodox belief and the intellectual thinking. But more than that, look to see if your life conforms to the character of the kingdom. Are you poor in spirit? Are you meek? And yet have that strength that says, yes, I am a sinner, but no matter what others do to me, I will stand up for truth and for God and for others. Do you have a merciful spirit? Are you compassionate to those who are hurting and lost and in physical need? Do you forgive or do you hold grudges as your deepest possession? That's what Jesus is saying. He's looking for how we respond to what he says about the law when he says, for I say to you, unless your righteousness, what? Surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Sobering words. Listen, you can, you can fake preaching. You can, you can learn how to, how to take the words and make them rise and make them fall and orchestrate it. You can, you can learn how to do that. You can figure it out. You can figure out how to do it. How easy is it to fake not having a grudge against someone? How easy is it to do? You can learn how to play the guitar. Trust me. You can learn how to play the guitar. You can learn how to sing. You can learn how to emote through your singing. You can learn how to, how to sing with emotion and sing true words. You can learn how to do that and how to lead people in worship. Trust me, you can learn how to do that. But how easy is it to fake being merciful to someone? How easy is it to, to actually fake that? It's a little harder, isn't it? See, I, I really think it boils down to that if you have been forgiven by God, you must forgive. And if you do not forgive, have you been forgiven? Have you understood forgiveness? If you have been shown mercy by God, you must show mercy. And if you do not show mercy, have you understood mercy? Have you received mercy? And I know we hear these words from Jesus and, 
and they are strong, right? They are pointed. They are clear. He's not sugarcoating anything. And I know there's a temptation to view it and look at that this is somehow harsh or that this is somehow um, too bold, too aggressive. Right? There's all these thoughts we can have. But really, this is beautiful what Jesus is doing here. This is grace to us that we can ask these questions because this is exactly the medicine that our souls need right now. That lip service alone, we will not enter the kingdom. But also, a religious lifestyle alone will not cut it. Verse 24 to 27 is... A famous story. So we all know the story about the house that was built on the rock and the house that was built on the sand. If you grew up in church, you probably learned the song and you know the emotions, the hand motions to the song, the wise man built, and you know you can do the whole thing. I think somehow, maybe, for those of us who are very close to church or have been in church and learned that song, that somehow the edge of the meaning has somehow been taken away, maybe. And we think back, oh, what a cute song, you know? And you do the house on the sand and the rock and the wind and the waves and the whole thing. We forget this is how Jesus closes his sermon. This is what he ends with. This is, he says, okay, now I've said all I need to say, and this is the last thing I'm going to say to you. It's more than just a, a cute and clever song that kids will sing at a Sunday school or in a VBS. It is much more than that. So we know about this, that these houses are actually metaphors for these two men's religious lives. And what's, what's interesting, the houses or the lives, they look, they appear to look the same. They have an appearance of looking the same. If you think just in our terms, right, you look and you say, all right, you know, there's a chimney over there, and there's a chimney over there, right? Ah, you know. Four bedrooms over there, ah, four bedrooms over there, a two-car garage over there, two-car garage over there, right? Fresh paint over here, fresh paint over here, nice yard over here, nice yard over here. They, they look the same. And the idea is so is the, the, the surface or the face of their lives. They look the same. Two men, maybe they attend the same church. They sing the same songs. They send their children to the same schools. A lot of same. What's the difference? One has been wise. The other has been a fool. In the Greek, the word is moro, which means where we get the word what? Moron. What did the wise man do? He excavated. He dug down, deep, all the way down, all the way down to the bedrock. And he put his house upon that 
No doubt there was some digging involved. He, he wasn't going to be able to do without some digging. The foolish man built seemingly the same house on the sand, the surface. No digging. So, the foundation of one man's life is solid. What about the foundation of the other man's life? It's non-existent. You, can't, you can barely say there is a foundation. So, the man who builds his house on this shifting sand is compared to the person who hears Jesus' words and then does what? Does not put them into practice. The man who builds his house upon the rock is likened to the word that likened to the person that what? Hears Jesus' words and not only hears them, but what? Puts them into practice. So the difference of the houses is compared to the difference between obedience and disobedience. If we hear Jesus' words in the sermon, if we hear his word, these soul-penetrating words, if we measure ourselves by, by his standard, if we evaluate ourselves by, by the ethic that he's given us, if we strain after the, what Jesus has talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, if we, if we strive after his teaching in prayer, if we strive after his teaching with devotion, we're building upon that rock. The, f the foolish man is shallow in his thinking. He lays the shallow foundation on the sand, right? He can't be troubled to dig. Meaning what? He can't be troubled with thinking things through, of going beneath the surface. What's his concern? Just, he wants the life to look nice. <laughs> the house, really, but the house is the metaphor. The life to look nice. And it does. It, look, it, it looks, it has the appearance of his friend, right, in church, his church friend. It looks like it, but what do we know? It is all outward, right? It is all style and not substance. It is all form and it's, and it's not faith. Our, my prayer is that Jesus' words would penetrate our hearts. Our hearts, for maybe some of us who, you know, we've kind of got, we get used to church, right? We get used to everything. We get comfortable, right? My, my, my prayer is that Jesus' words would penetrate our hearts, right? It's not our, our, our Christian cultural distinctions that save us, right? It's not these these rites and rituals that we do that save us, right? It's not just the experience that we're having that saves us. It's not our heritage that saves us. It's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that is so profound and growing that it produces His character, the character of His kingdom in our lives. It's not just on the surface, though it's can be seen, and it ought to be seen. 
As Jesus concludes, he, he talks about the fact that the storms will reveal whether we have the true foundation or not. Now, I think when we have most, mostly heard teaching about, these, these, um, about this passage, and I think if we grew up and we, we learned that song, and most, most of the time we think about these storms as, uh, and have been taught as, um, the trials of life that come through. And there is a sense that it is that, but the primary reference for Jesus here is to a final judgment. We know that because in the Old Testament, we see that what is the storm the symbol of? The storm is the symbol of God's judgment. You can see that in Ezekiel, right? It is a symbol of the judgment of God. The storm can also refer to life's difficulties. And I know there are challenges that will come into our lives, hard times difficult times, and it is hard, it, I, I, it can be hard to see it as anything other than hard and difficult when you are in the middle of it. I grant you that. But really, if we pause to come and see that those storms coming through can be very gracious to us, because sometimes a gracious, dark, hurling storm might hit but it allows us to say hold on where is my foundation right it's actually grace to us and we find out that our foundation is lacking but how tragic would it be to only find this out at the final judgment. Think about it. Many, many. Remember that word many. Don't leave here this, this morning without remembering that word many. Many will cry, Lord, Lord. From the, from the rubble of their own life's house, and what will Jesus say? I never knew you. We, as members of a church, we call him Lord, Lord. We see his power at work among us, but we must make sure that we truly know him. It can be easy to fool the pastor. It can be easy to fool our friends. It can be easy to fool our parents. It can be easy to fool a lot of people even ourselves. What do we have to do? Just learn the lingo, learn the vocabulary, adapt to those little cultural conventions. But Jesus does not want any of us to fall into such delusions. He wants us to take note of our lives and where they are going. What are the questions? Do you know Christ or do you just know the words? Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ or are you just, just riding on, on the heritage, just riding on, on what your parents have done and what's gone before you? 
Is the fruit of the Spirit evident in your life? Can the character of the kingdom be seen there? Is Jesus alive in your life? Do you love him? These are important questions. And they have nothing to do with lip service or style. They have nothing to do with that. My prayer as we come uh, to this conclusion here, as we'll wrap up shortly, my prayer is that as we come to the end of Jesus' sermon, that we would examine our hearts, that we wouldn't run away from examining our hearts, but we would examine our hearts and examine them by the standards that Jesus has set down. Examine them by what the sermon has said, what he has said in his sermon, not by anything else. We are so quick to use the standard of this world to examine ourselves. We are so quick to use the standard of cultural Christianity to evaluate ourselves. We're quick to use the standard that maybe our friends have for us or our parents have for us or anybody else has for us to examine ourselves. My prayer for us this morning is that we would use what Jesus has said as the standard by which we examine ourselves, not by our culture or anything else in this world. Can we be wise Can you not be bothered to dig a little bit? Let's dig. Let's dig deep. All the way down to the bedrock that is Jesus Christ. His death and his resurrection for us. It's easy to just lay on the surface, right? It's easy to just... Look at the sand and shift it around a little bit. But wisdom is found in digging down into the bedrock. Let's set our foundation. Let's set the foundation of our church upon Jesus. Let's set the foundation of our lives upon Jesus. Let's set the foundation of our families upon Jesus. And let us not run from digging deep and examining ourselves the way Jesus has called us to. Amen. Let's worship the Lord together this morning.